Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out, and found one of his fellow servants which owed him an hundred pence, and he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet, and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison, till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then this Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Hello again. Welcome to another episode of A Father's Instruction. This is Jason Tackett. Today, we will be talking about a very hard and difficult subject for every one of us. Forgiveness. And we're going to explore what it means to forgive and how we can forgive through Jesus Christ. I pray this will be a blessing to you. There are many subjects in apologetics that are very difficult, but this subject is difficult in a very different way because this subject demands something of us behaviorally. Uh, And I I assume the others do as well, and I I don't want to paint a broad brush if you're talking about metaphysics or or aesthetics or ethics or or uh, you're dealing with arguments of God. They all demand something of you. But this demands something of you that is much different and even contrary to the way we are naturally. Um, 
Ephesians chapter 4, we are given this imperative, forgiving one another, even as Christ hath forgiven you. And that is a very, very difficult thing uh, for us to wrap our mind around. The greatest apologetic for the truth of the Christian faith is found in the practice of mercy and the practice of forgiveness. There is a universal recognition that there is a greater reality to forgiveness than is found in our nature alone. So it's not something that's natural to us. You've heard the saying, to err is human, but to forgive is divine. So it's natural for us to offend. It is not natural for us to forgive when we are offended against. That is something that is above our nature. And there's that recognition, a long time recognition of that fact. There is little room for forgiveness outside of Christianity. Forgiveness is a weakness in nature. Or at least it's seen that way. Darwinism is about survival of the fittest. Therefore, forgiveness can only be explained in evolutionary terms as that which arose to aid in the survival of the human species. So if you're wanting to look at, at uh, forgiveness through the eyes of evolutionary theory, uh, it is just a mechanism that has been brought forth to help us survive. But for an individual or society to allow themselves to be defrauded or exploited runs contrary to that nature. Such a thought would, in the faulty wisdom of this world, guarantee the weakness and eventual death of those that practice it. Forgiveness is a very hard thing for evolutionary ideology. The Darwinists may say that empathy arose for the survival of humanity. And I always giggle a little bit when those uh, ideas are being put forth. Uh, forgiveness arose. Uh, I, I remember sitting in in a, a, a social psychology class one day in my undergrad, and the uh, professor stated that uh, the need to belong arose uh, to help humanity survive. And I always wondered, how did they survive before that arose? And the same thing with empathy. They would, Darwinists would say that empathy arose for the survival of humanity and that empathy may cause one to have mercy. That's the evolutionary explanation for the existence of, of uh, merciful acts. On the side of the injuring party, there may be a desire to receive mercy when revenge is to be placed on them for their injury of others. However, what reason would the injured party who has power to exact revenge have to extend forgiveness? That's a very good question uh, to ask of those that hold evolutionary forgiveness or evolutionary ideas of the development of forgiveness. If they would, how would it help their survival if they forgave?
one that defrauded them, one that hurt them, one that injured them. If, if they showed some semblance of mercy, it must, in the evolutionary view, help the forgiving party to survive. Nevertheless, if that is the case, what they end up with is not forgiveness. It's not forgiveness at all. They end up with a form of mercy that is only extended if it is advantageous to the forgiving party in some way. So when we're considering forgiveness from an evolutionary point of view, we come to the conclusion that naturalism and materialism destroy mercy and the idea of mercy and, forgive, and the forgiveness that flows out of it. Now, I don't want to spend time at all discussing or arguing against evolutionary theory here. I really want to get kind of more into the meat of what it means to exercise forgiveness. And in order to do that, I want to try to describe the nature of forgiveness. Well, let, let me say this first. Forgiveness is a matter of justice. Now, I'm not saying forgiveness is justice. I'm saying forgiveness is built upon the foundation of the idea of justice. In order to have forgiveness, you must have certain things. You must have an injured party. In the eyes of justice, the party that caused the injury owes a debt to the one that they have injured. The right of the injured party is to demand justice. To demand that they be recompensed for their injury or for their loss. Uh, the idea of justice is taught in the scriptures. An eye for an eye. And that doesn't mean that, uh, that, that just means that you pay back equitably that which was lost or that, that loss which was caused. They have a right to be restored. So the injured party has a right to be restored from their loss or from their injury. In the matter of forgiveness, the injured party gives up all right to seek justice in the matter of, in the, matter of the injury or loss. Therefore, in order for forgiveness to be a reality, there must be this reality of justice. Another thing, forgiveness is not just a matter of justice, but forgiveness involves suffering. But so does justice. In justice, the suffering is transferred to the party that caused the injury. So the injured party takes that suffering and gives that suffering back to the injured party. They are made to suffer rightly for what they have done, and this is just. Or they are made to suffer wrongfully in the terms of malicious revenge, or the idea, uh, an eye, uh, more than an eye for an eye, or something like that. Um, but forgiveness also involves suffering. The injured party, in order to truly forgive, must decide to keep all the suffering of the injury 
to themselves and not ask that it be returned to the perpetrator. For instance, as we go to the cross of Jesus Christ, he said, Father, forgive them as he hung there upon the cross. He kept the suffering as he could have returned it, could have called 12 legions of angels, so on and so forth. He could have came down from the cross. But he hung there and he bled and he died and said, Father, forgive them. He chose in that forgiveness to keep all of the suffering to himself instead of returning it to them that injured him. Anything less than that is not true forgiveness. And another thing, in that line, the forgiveness is not something that we do for ourselves, but something that we do solely as an act of mercy toward those to whom it is extended. Oscar Wilde, um, that bastion of hedonism, uh, stated at one point that we ought always to forgive our enemies because nothing annoys them more. And that is not forgiveness. Uh, it, it's a form of revenge, or at least it's some at least it's some form of attempted justice. Well, I'll forgive just to annoy them. The same with harboring bitterness and resentment. Men like Oscar Wilde mistake the benefits of forgiveness with forgiveness itself. Will forgiveness help you lower your blood pressure? Or will it help you lower your stress? Possibly. Nevertheless, forgiveness is not done so you can lower your blood pressure or you can end your stress. Uh, uh, forgiveness is acting in a way in which we are giving up a right and not gaining a blessing for ourselves. Gandhi once said that forgiveness is an attribute of the strong. And I cannot kind of understand that, but that misses the point. If one forgives only for the sense of one's own vainglory so they can be seen to be strong, then they are simply using the occasion of their injury to push themselves above the other. Pride is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not us being the bigger person or anything of that nature. It is not something that is feeding or it's not something we are gaining for ourselves it is the giving up of a right so forgiveness is the selfless act of love and it's a self it's an unnatural act of love uh, it's easy to love ourselves it's easy to build ourselves up forgiveness requires that we set that aside and Fallen nature has no place in that at all. That's why they say forgiveness is divine. It offers no advantage to the giver of it, and therefore when it is genuinely found, it cannot be, the, it cannot be explained in Darwinian terms. Forgiveness, if it exists at all, is to be wholly selfless. And we must look for its example in the realms of supernatural grace and not in our nature. We must look for it in the mind and heart of God. Therefore, 
as we consider forgiveness, forgiveness, when it is truly practiced, is not understood. In fact, when I was presenting this to a group of seventh graders, and even to others, other than the seventh graders, when I was presenting these facts about forgiveness, it did not seem like it was something they wanted to practice. It's misunderstood when we find it. Years ago, we were uh, there was a story in the news about a shooting in an Amish, Amish schoolhouse in Pennsylvania. Uh, the selfless and senseless act left many small children dead. The nation for a moment shed its tears with the Amish community. They wept over their loss. The nation stood in unbelief as that same community freely forgave the man that tormented them. And they did more than that. They reached out to the man's family that tormented them. And as children, they gave of their time to comfort them in their pain and distress. It was a beautiful picture. And everyone was wondering, why are they doing this? It's nothing less than divine in its origin. So the origin of forgiveness can only be explained in reference to the divine or in reference to the personal God uh, that we speak of in the scriptures. It assumes the existence of morality, for in order for forgiveness to exist, there must be a wrong that was done. Forgiveness occurs behind the backdrop of absolute morality. Forgiveness is a response to wrongdoing, a response to sin. It is relational in nature. It involves a wronged party and a party that has perpetuated the wrong. It fits, therefore, into the scheme of biblical theism of the triune Godhead. And why do I say that? I say that because... A Unitarian view of God, a God uh, that is just one person, is unable to explain the origin of forgiveness. Only a God that can love can forgive. And I hope I don't have to go into that much deeper uh, as we dealt with that a little bit when we were talking about ethics. But only a God that has the capacity of love can forgive. That's why there's not much speech in the Muslim world about Allah forgiving Allah or a Jehovah's Witness God. Um, the God or God, the Unitarian idea of God is not a, as a God that has to create in order to be able to love, has to create in, in order to uh, do any of these relational realities, and that would include forgiveness. Um, the Unitarian God cannot explain the existence of plurality or relational realities like this. Forgiveness derives from love, which derives only from a relational being, and that's the God that is presented to us in the Scripture, a God that not only can love but does love because he loved before he ever created only the God that is a being in relationship and a ter 
in eternal submission among his persons, one to another, is a God that can ultimately forgive. So God is that first cause of forgiveness. It's the existence of forgiveness is a byproduct of his nature as creator. He is a God that humbly of himself gives to make himself known in his creation. With the entrance of sin, the forgiveness of, of sin became a central part of the story of redemption and therefore a central part in in humanity itself. There was nothing that any man could do that could advantage God and earn forgiveness. Psalm 50, he says, what are you going to bring me? What are you going to give me? What sacrifices? I own everything. We do not advantage him. God forgives freely. One might ask, did not God demand sacrifices? Yes, he did but not for his advantage. Rather, it was for our advantage. The sacrifices commanded were not that God may be appeased, but to point us to what God did himself when he would provide himself a lamb. God did not excuse sin. He did not condone sin. Rather, he freely showed mercy by taking the injury upon himself, ultimately in the person of Christ upon the cross. We have forgiveness, according to Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.14, through the shedding of his blood. So the nature of forgiveness is not the condoning of evil or wrong. It does not attempt to say, that it was acceptable that the wrong happened. Forgiveness is not absent judgment. It does not attempt to excuse the wrong by saying that there may have been extenuating circumstances that caused the wrong. Forgiveness sees evil and wrong as evil and wrong. It does not attempt to do otherwise. So when someone says, someone asks for forgiveness and someone responds to them and says, oh, don't worry about it, it was nothing. That's, that's not something that derives from, for, from true forgiveness or true understanding of forgiveness. It's forgiveness sees evil as evil. It operates in a world of suffering and it operates despite that world. The wrongdoer is not seen as anything less than morally responsible for their decisions in the exercise of forgiveness. And this is the rub when it comes for this comes to the sinner, for they must see themselves as guilty and without excuse before they can ever truly seek forgiveness. The publican in Luke 18 saw himself as a sinner before he cried out have mercy upon me. The penitent sees themselves in need of pardon and in need of mercy. Therefore, penitence 
recognize that the wrong that they have done to others entitles the others to justice. And we have to come before God like that when we're seeking forgiveness for our sins. We come before him knowing that he has a right to judge us. All of this is cognizant for the, for the giver of forgiveness as well. The pardon nulls the justice. The pardon nulls the punishment, rather. Forgiveness is that full extent of mercy. It is not simply the lessening of punishment to something a little bit lighter. But it is the removing of the punishment altogether. Someone says, well, I'll forgive you but if you mow my lawn or something like that. That's, that's not forgiveness. That's, they, they may have deserved far worse than getting, having to mow your lawn, but that, that's not forgiveness. Those who are asked to forgive sometimes fall into two traps. One, they falsely come to believe that forgiveness asks them not to see the wrong as wrong. Alternatively, they come to believe that forgiveness can still allow for some smaller demand of justice. And neither of those is true. So, continuing on as we're looking at this, the nature of forgiveness further necessitates reconciliation. Humanly speaking, this is very hard. Reconciliation is probably the hardest thing for us to grasp and a stumbling block for many in this discussion. And humanly speaking, it's hard, if, if not impossible. Um, and I again highlight the divine nature of forgiveness. We realize that the wrong that was done damaged the relationship between the wronged and the wrongdoer. Forgiveness purposes and longs for restoration of that relationship. Any attempt to reconcile without forgiveness is to fail to fully reconcile. It's to leave that, that festering wound there. Bitterness and malice will grow up and trouble us, as in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, until the relationship is completely destroyed. Uh, marriages have been destroyed like this, where things were just allowed to fester as they pretend and pretended that the wrongs were never done. Uh, there are instances in the present evil world where reconciliation is not possible. Uh, one, uh, the unrepentant nature of the wrongdoer, for one, if someone refuses to, to repent, they, they cannot there can't be any real expression of forgiveness or sometimes the extreme level of risk posed by reconciliation or uh, makes makes reconciliation impossible examples of this may be instances that i've seen of child sexual abuse extreme spouse abuse uh, attempted murder things of that nature we should not forget that the scriptures call for justice when there is actual injury in this sinful world, God, God does not expect us to put ourselves in the way 
of unwarranted injury or to put others in our care, especially children, in the way of injury. To seek legal remedies to address harm is not incongruent with forgiveness. One may seek those and still have a forgiving heart. In such an instance, it does not become, or rather, it does become a matter of the heart. Uh, the scriptures say, when you, Christ said, when you stand praying, forgive. It didn't say go express that forgiveness, but have a heart of forgiveness. Um, to forgive in those instances may be reduced to just the idea that I'm not going to carry malice against that person. I'm not going to speak ill anymore of that person. I'm not going to hurl insults or curses. And those may be all things that the perpetrator rightly deserves. Such a measure of forgive, forgiveness may be the best one can do in some extreme circumstances in this present evil world when faced with these dire circumstances. Moving on, I want to kind of tackle the question of applying forgiveness in our daily lives. And I think in order, with all of what we said as a foundation, I think in order for that to happen, we have to consider the forgiveness of Christ first. The candle of our forgiveness that we light in our forgiveness is a lesser form of light than the brightness of the sun of his forgiveness. Forgiveness is a substantial and real thing. When we speak about the forgiveness of Christ, we're not speaking simply about Christ changing his feelings or his attitude or the Father doing the same. In this sense, there was a real debt of sin, a real wrong that we had done. It was a real thing that was against us, real real crimes and accusations. It was that that was the foundation or the truths of the context of us being forgiven. There was no resentment that Christ had to let go of. We stood with a real guilt before a true and holy God that must judge sin. Christ stood on our behalf to effect forgiveness and the full cancellation of that debt. While the emotional aspect of human forgiveness is important, it's not divine. It is the product of his love and the but it is also grounded in his justice. We carry resentment because our hearts are hard by injury. Therefore, the releasing and relinquishing of resentment and bitterness becomes an effect of us forgiving. Nevertheless, Christ entered into the business of forgiveness without resentment. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world in Revelation 13, 8. It was always, even before Adam sinned, it was always in the mind and heart of God to work forgiveness. 
It was love that wrought forgiveness. That is what we are called to follow when it says, even as Christ has forgiven you, so forgive ye one another. We must forgive out of the motive of love for those we are to forgive. Nor was forgiveness, the forgiveness of Christ, simply the act of forbearing punishment. God had been long-suffering to us before Christ affected our forgiveness. God is rich in mercy because of the great love wherewith he loved us. All of salvation, including the act of forgiveness, is the product of divine love. Forgiveness can be nothing less than a loving thing. It is said of Christ that God hath exalted him with his right hand to be a savior and a prince for to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. All that the Father and Son had done in that they so loved the world was for the singular purpose of effecting our forgiveness. The apostles freely said in Acts 13.38, Through this man, Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sin. When we consider the great love of Christ, we learn forgiveness. When he poured out his lifeblood, for that through that blood we have the forgiveness of sin, we see forgiveness for what it truly is. Forgiveness is the perfect love of God expressed to us. That divine love is beyond our understanding. We have the privilege of trying to know it, as in Ephesians 3, to know the height, the width, the breadth, the depth of it. But to be able to truly forgive is to first know the motive that drives forgiveness, and that motive is love. And another thing, forgiveness is a free thing. This goes further than the motive. It goes to the method. The method speaks largely to the source of forgiveness. If forgiveness is freely given, then it is something that first comes from one that is absolutely free to give. We are all indebted in some way. We do wrong to others. We desire forgiveness just as much as we are asked to forgive others. We need forgiveness just as much as we need to forgive. However, God is not such. We cannot accuse God of wrong. God is not indebted. Yet God is full of mercy and ready to forgive. Forgiveness is the product of free grace from one that has done no wrong. It comes from one that is without spot. The power of forgiveness comes from pure holiness that can only be found in God. If this is not true, then true forgiveness cannot truly exist. But only a 
constant reciprocation of sinners passing judgment in hope of judgment passing from them as well if their time comes. You owe me a favor kind of thing. Quid pro quo. Forgiveness is such a pure thing that it must only come from a pure source. That's why the Pharisees asked the question, who can forgive sins but God? He alone can forgive freely. God alone occupies a place of perfect holiness, which is not compelled by conscience of guilt to spur forgiveness. Our own debt is often an argument for us to forgive. Forgiveness, though, the forgiveness of God is free. Occupying a place of perfect holiness, God occupies a place of perfect judgment. He alone can see the debt of sin for what it truly is. Further, occupying a place of perfect sovereignty, he alone is the party of the transgressed. It is always when we sin, primarily, God that is sinned against. Psalm 51.4, against thee and thee only have I sinned, and God forgives sin. No one but God can forgive sin in the ultimate sense. This was the great controversy that I was quoting a second ago of the Pharisees saying, who can forgive sins but God? He proclaimed that he, the Son of Man, had the power on earth to forgive sins in Mark 2, 5-11. He was, or rather is, holy, harmless, separate from sinners, free from sin, as well as made higher than the heavens. Thus, when he hung upon a cross, the forgiveness of God flowed from him. Daniel rightly proclaimed in Daniel 9, 9, To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, to only him. When we freely receive Christ, we receive the source of all forgiveness, first for ourselves and then for others. So when we receive Christ, we find that the forgiveness that we offer is not ours at all. It's his. Or as it said again, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. We become conduits of and expressions of that free grace that we have experienced. If forgiveness, it is not, if, if forgiveness is not free, it is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is also an expressed thing. It says in Matthew 9, 2, Jesus, seeing their face, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Forgiveness is not simply something that is given, but something that is made known, something that is revealed for the injurious party to know their guilt, but never know that the injured party has extended forgiveness is not forgiveness. This goes beyond the idea that forgiveness is simply letting go of one's hurt. That, that, that's not so. Forgiveness is not simply you letting go of your hurt. It is, it is a real expression to the injurious, the wrongdoer. It must, by its very nature, be expressed. 
The mercy of the Lord was not simply something that rested in his nature, but the Son, who is the Word of God, expressed it. The law came by Moses, but mercy and truth came by the Son. There is something in the nature of forgiveness that demands the incarnation. Forgiveness was always intended to be a revealed thing. God made himself known in the garden via a sacrifice. God declared in the law that he shows mercy to thousands that love him. The poets and the prophets expressed it in many ways, and last of God, uh, last of all, rather, God spoke to us by his son in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. It was he that declared that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. Moreover, he expressed it at last from the pains of his cross when he prayed for our forgiveness. Any forgiveness that lacks expression or lacks revelation is not true forgiveness that comes from a true source. Continuing on, we learn that forgiveness is an applied thing. What do I mean by this? In the Old Testament economy, the penitent would come to the priest who would offer sacrifices for the sinner and, based on the blood being applied to the altar, the sin would be forgiven. Forgiveness depends upon that ground in all its forms. Paul, when speaking of the justification of the sinner, quoted the psalmist as saying, Blessed are they whose sins are forgiven and whose iniquities are covered. It is that covering of blood that satisfies the demand of the justice of a holy God. Forgiveness flows from justice, the justice of God. It's not contrary to it, as has already been discussed Paul again taught, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In Ephesians 1.7, it's the basis of our spiritual life. And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Colossians 2.13 in addition, it is the basis of our continued fellowship with Christ. If we confess our, our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You do hear that. He is just to forgive. Why? Because our forgiveness was brought from his justice through Christ taking the suffering upon himself. As such, it is settled that divine forgiveness flows fully and wholly from the application of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when it says to us that we forgive as Christ forgave, or we forgive our debts as Christ forgave our debts, 
then the application of forgiveness finds that same basis. How do we forgive? How can I forgive Joe if Joe has injured me? I forgive it because of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The ground of forgiveness has already been applied. We find ourselves not needing to forgive others because of our own graciousness, but because of God's grace. Ultimately, we find that we forgive because he forgives. That which covered us and the deep blots that were against us has the power to forgive them too. If all manner of sin and and blasphemy was forgiven you, then all manner of such may be forgiven them that have wronged you. This answers the hardest question of all. Whether we should forgive this or that egregious act that's been committed against us. Should I forgive this? That's what people will ask. If we seek God to forgive our trespasses, then we should be easy to forgive those that first. It should be easy, rather, for us to forgive those that hurt us. It is not us that forgives, it's Christ. We only extend that to those who seek it from us. It was freely received and it should be freely given. And then, to continue on, the matter of divine forgiveness is a permanent thing. What we call forgiveness is often short-lived. We will forgive and then we'll bring it up again. Christ forgives and remembers our sins no more. We marvel at the connection that Christ often made to the permanence of forgiveness. He spoke to his disciples about forgiving 70 times 7. When a brother turns to repent of a wrong, we forgive him. And that's not a calculation. Uh, Once he reaches 490, that's when we're really done. Whereas one man said, it's to cause us to lose count. Man is apt to try to set limits to say, I will forgive only so much. However, the permanent nature of forgiveness flows naturally from its source, which is eternal and divine. Our God has said, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four, I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. God forgives all our trespasses. That forgiveness divine is meant to flow through us without limits too. Uh, One of the points of the parable that I read in the beginning regarding the king that forgave the great debt to one who turned and failed to forgive a smaller debt in another was just that. The forgiveness of the great debtor was to encompass all debts owed to them, to the debtor as well. The permanency of the experience of our forgiveness should translate outward to those who stand in need of our forgiveness. This is the love of God, free and without limits to all who desire 
to enjoy it. God does not capriciously forgive to exact the debt again against us. Therefore, we do not seek to exact it of others. There are those who look at such a doctrine of forgiveness and they mock it. They say that such is fine for God, but it shows a lack of self-respect and self-esteem. Aristotle spoke of the need for appropriate anger in life to defend oneself from insult and stated that all that were deficient in this were fools. Kant, a philosopher from from the Enlightenment, echoed that such a person who fails to become angry at suffering personal injustices lacks dignity. Hume, the great skeptics, the skeptical philosopher, simply stated that such suffered from weakness and imbecility. That's people who exercise Christian forgiveness. This seems to resonate with us, though. Like I said, when I was teaching this to seventh graders, they stated, why would we want to forgive? It resonates with our baser nature. Nevertheless, it fails to see the almighty and eternal nature that offers forgiveness, and it fails to see the great strength of character and love of those who decide to be conduits for such a divine nature. Of such, or if we were able rather to ascertain, there would rarely be a need to discuss the appropriateness of forgiveness in certain cases. There may be times that it is appropriate to be angry. There may be times it is appropriate to escape. However, there are never times it is appropriate to hold on to bitterness and an unforgiving spirit against those that seek forgiveness. There is never an appropriate time for us to exact and harbor a sense of revenge to those who repent. God didn't do that to us. Can we do it to others? To those who stand unrepentant of their wrongs, what about them? They didn't repent. They never said they were sorry. We should still stand with a humbled heart ready to forgive as God does the unrepentant. Psalm 86, 5, he is ready to forgive. To those who are unrepentant, we let justice and revenge lay in the hands of God. It belongs only to him. Romans twelve nineteen. That brings me to another point and that is the necessity of forgiveness in the Christian life. Since our life, our salvation flows from the free and applied and expressed loving forgiveness of God through Christ, the sacrificial atonement, then our life necessitates forgiveness as we go on. This necessity of forgiveness lies first in our own fault. Let him that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. That was the message of Christ regarding the woman that was taken in adultery. There is no man that does good and sins not. Our relationship to others is paramount. And 
We must have a sense of our own sin in those relationships when we're considering others. It affects our ability to approach God when we have wronged others. So we have to keep short accounts on our end. Our ability to bring our gifts to the altar of God is hindered when we make our sin, until we make our sins right, rather, with those that we have wronged, or at least seek to make them right. Matthew 5, if you come to the altar and remember that you that your brother has a reason or has ought against you, anything against you, go be reconciled to them first and then bring your gift. That is how it is with our forgiveness of others. Christ taught us that unless we forgive or at least have the willingness to forgive, then we shall not be forgiven. That's a hard saying. There's no need for us to apply that though to salvation to fail to forgive in the christian life will result in us losing the sense of forgiveness in this life and not the loss of salvation salvation does not depend on our ability to do anything or in our performance of things our salvation is all of grace therefore to read the warning of christ that we will lose forgiveness if we fail to forgive cannot mean the loss of salvation it does yet mean something horrid, the loss of our sense and experience of forgiveness. There is a need for us to forgive others as Christ forgave. It was to those born-again persons that God called our Father that Christ taught this thing, that unless you forgive, you shall not be forgiven. Maybe it is meant to describe our heart of the heart of the true Christian who is after Christ is marked by a willingness to forgive and is made to be a conduit for the forgiveness of Christ toward others. Consider again the parable of the debtor. The debtor owed a great amount, and under the great sense of that debt and the punishment of it, sought the forgiveness of that debt and gained it. He in turn went out and found one that owed him a little, and when they sought him for forgiveness, he refused. For this, the wickedness of the debtor was revealed. The other servants saw it and went to their Lord who exacted the debt, of, debt to the debtor. Then Christ said that it shall be thus if we refuse to forgive. We cannot worship God aright if we do not forgive. I quoted this earlier, Mark eleven twenty five, and when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Forgive that you may have the experience of his forgiveness. We cannot stand in right relationship with our brothers if we do not forgive. Take heed, Luke seventeen three. Take heed to yourself if there if if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. If he repent, forgive him. And again, don't don't get caught in this idea that you don't call wrong for what it is. It says, if he's done something against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. 
This is the necessity that is laid upon those who follow Christ. To know Christ truly is to have a readiness to forgive. And that we find the forgiveness principle. We forgive one another as Christ forgave. The key to forgiveness, the full meaning of it, lies in us being forgiven. Until that time, we cannot express forgiveness in any sense. The grandest need that we had stood in our need of forgiveness. That was satisfied in Christ. All other needs of men toward us are encompassed and satisfied within that. When we experience that forgiveness, we open up the tap for others. We now know the blessed results of being forgiven. Luke 7.47 Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. This is the outflow of love. It flows out toward those that suffer under sin, and we have forgiveness from that outflow of love. 2 Corinthians 2, 7, So that contrarywise ye ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Being that conduit, we help others find that love and forgiveness of Christ. One last scripture, 2 Corinthians 2.10 To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes I forgave I it in the person of Christ. Those were the words of Paul. This is the biblical result of forgiveness. This is the life we are to live in Christ. I hope that you received something from the Lord today as we went over these basic principles of forgiveness. And I pray that we will also find a way to express these truths in our life. Until next time, Lord bless.